Welcome back to Mark's Madness. Now a chunk of Luta network project thing. Um, I don't know. I feel like I should have my own intro, but at the same time, keeping it true to David's is kind of like, yeah. We can have multiple intros. It's fine. Right. <laughs> so anyway, it's just Prez and I again this week. Um, where's David again? I don't even remember. On vacation? Yeah, I don't remember if we ever... He was visiting there. someone. Anyway, Dave is not here. I think he'll be back next week. Though. His geo-coordinates are... Yeah, yeah, right. <laughs> Speaking of geo-coordinates, we have one piece of news today. And that news is about the fucking submarine that the billionaires died in or whatever. <laughs> <laughs> I kind of wish it was painted yellow so I could make a yellow submarine joke, but this is this is fine, I suppose. I mean, it was probably yellow submarine once their <laughs> bowels released. It's a piss <laughs> joke. Anyway. <laughs> Apparently they have like a recurring playlist that the CEO made, so maybe the starting song was uh, Celine Dion's My Heart Will Go On. <laughs> Ah, that would be great. So if you don't know, um, there was this submarine that the boys threw together in a weekend (laughs) and sold for $250,000 a seat to tour the Titanic wreckage. And you would think, oh, well, you know, they're billionaires. They're making a submarine. Surely they'll they'll have state-of-the-art equipment. Now, to save money, they didn't put in a GPS or echolocation or anything. They just. Or a beacon to the ship. Or a beacon to the ship. They just. Uh, they had a cell phone <laughs> that they were going to use in the ocean. And a 20 t- year old video game controller from Logitech Which that, is just... that works on Microsoft ME. Oh, me. I've never even used that one. I'm too young for that. Like, that's terrifying. Um, And it's, I mean, like, you couldn't, like, get a PS2 controller or something. So Microsoft ME came out in 2000, and they shut it down in 2006. Success. (laughs) But anyway, uh, that's hilarious. Um, but it's that's really the real news. Oh, actually, we do have a bigger piece of news. We have several bigger pieces of news, actually, now that I'm thinking about it, that are way more important than that. <laughs> um, so they just declared uh, a 156-mile stretch of the California Central Coastline. Uh, well, they're on the verge of declaring it a national marine sanctuary that would be ran and designated by tribal people only like it, an actual exercise in sovereignty almost. Um, but it would be like the very first legally um, defined example of water back, which, you know, will only further help prove that indigenous people are the correct stewards of the fucking land. All right. First land back now water back. This is going too far. <laughs> yeah. Right. No. Well, a lot of people don't realize that a lot of our, um, treaties are defined based on water designations. So, like, our treaties define based on where the tide comes up on the other side of the river, um, the Platte River. So, instead of, you know, the river being the dividing line, it's actually the tide line that's the dividing line. 
uh, on the settler side. So the settlers lose out on water rights if we are to uphold the treaties. But of course, they're not interested in that. Um, and then also, uh, there's been recent um, DNA confirmations um, proving that indigenous people have been here for at least 15,000 years or more. Um, so the whole bearing land straight uh, model, which suggests we came here 12,000 years ago, is pretty much completely disproven. Uh, because again, like Montverde is where they found it. Uh, not in the Southwest, in South America. Uh, and it's like a 15,000 year old site. Whereas um, Clovis first kindest estimates are 13,000 years. Um, there's an excellent book called the indigenous paleolithic of the Western hemisphere, um, which goes into this, uh, a lot of this stuff much much further. Um, and there's also a book by Vine Deloria Jr. known as Red Earth, White Lies that also addresses a lot of this uh, controversy within academia. That one's an older book. And so Indigenous Paleolithic is sort of like the spiritual successor. Uh, if I recall correctly, the author actually helped train, well, was helped and trained by Vine Deloria Jr. Um, anyway, we're back reading Gramsci. We're back reading the terms of Gramsci. We're in the glossary right. of key terms. <laughs> maybe, maybe we'll get through it and read a, an essay, but we'll see. And, uh, you know, if you don't know where we are, we're on uh, page 420. <laughs> These pages are not helpful. <laughs> but it's... Uh, right after the introductions chronological order of things. And since we're in 420, I gotta I gotta do an honorary bong rib. And we'll just we'll head right in. Caesarism, a political opposition between two or more social forces, is said by Gramsci to be resolved in a Caesarist way, when a third force arises to hold them temporarily in equilibrium. Caesarism is not really above the interests of both of the opposing forces and will in practice favor one or the other. It will be either progressive or regressive. A Caesarist solution may take the form of a personal dictatorship, Caesar, Napoleon, Bismarck, um, but not necessarily. In modern societies, Gramsci says, it may exist even without a Caesar. Here, a political crisis will be less likely to result in a Bonapartist-style military dictatorship and more likely to be resolved by an emergency parliamentary coalition, the immediate of political opponents, or the use of police. See Section 8, which <laughs> useless to us. We'll get there. <laughs> we'll get there. Okay, so... These, these are all terms that we're going to see over and over again. Section 8 is literally like... It's, I think it's literally just called Caesarism. Okay, so but th these are the things we're going to encounter, and so we know what they mean. Well, when he just like says the word Caesar in a fucking line without explaining anything. All right, so in order to go forward, we must go back. Yes, it's your turn, right? We said we were going to go one one on one. Oh yeah, <laughs> civil society. Gramsci uses this term to designate, quote, the ensemble of organisms commonly called, quote unquote, private, end quote. 
That is to say, the sum of social activities and institutions which are not directly part of the government, the judiciary, or the repressive bodies, meaning the police, armed forces, etc. Trade unions and other voluntary associations, as well as church organizations and political parties, when the latter do not form part of the government, and by that he means like what we would think is like activist groups today, that that kind of political political party. We're going to see that he's very broad with the idea of a political party. Political parties, when the latter do not form part of the government, are all part of civil society. Civil society is the sphere in which a dominant social group organizes consent and hegemony, as opposed to political society, where it rules by coercion and direct domination. It is also a sphere where the dominated social groups may organize their opposition and where an alternative hegemony may be constructed. Althusser builds on, this isn't part of the definition, Althusser builds on this with his whole uh, repressive state apparatus and ideological state apparatus. It's a good essay that probably read if you're interested in this. This is also, Gramsci's the first one to invent the term civil society. So it's a pretty, pretty big term. So we have him to blame on the Indian side of things. Yes. <laughs> Anyway, common sense. Dun, dun, dun. Everyone, for Gramsci, has a number of conceptions of the world, which often tend to be in contradiction with one another and therefore form an incoherent whole. Many of these conceptions are imposed and absorbed passively from outside or from the past and are accepted and lived uncritically. In this case, they constitute what Gramsci calls common sense, or in other context, folklore. Many elements in popular common sense contribute to people's subordination by making situations of inequality and oppression appear to them as natural and unchangeable. Nevertheless, common sense must not be thought of as false consciousness or as ideology in a merely negative sense. It is contradictory. It contains elements of truth as well as elements of misrepresentation. And it is, often, uh, it is upon these contradictions that leverage may be obtained in a struggle of political, quote-unquote, hegemonies. Hegemonies. I don't know. For Gramsci, it was important that Marxism should not present itself as an abstract philosophy, but should enter people's common sense, giving them a more critical understanding of their own situation. See, in particular, section... Why do I keep getting this? <laughs> section 11 and... <laughs> philosophy of praxis in this glossary okay um but i just think it's really funny that marxism entering common sense wasn't exactly the way he thought it would enter common sense well a lot of the stuff that he's working on are like ideals of how these things should go with the party organizing not not how they went in relation to like all the shit that went on a lot of this stuff is like the importance of Gramsci is seeing that we can apply this stuff and how to do it rather than a prescription of how it should be done um what is it that we shouldn't take Marx's prescriptions as like actual prescriptions because he was kind of wrong you know like maybe a lot of what we read should be taken as framework instead of answers Well, there's too many uh, people who just take Marx. (laughs) 
for a prescription. <laughs> anyway. Mark, Mark said, Mark said, it's like, well, Lenin is the one who had the revolution, wasn't he? <laughs> Marx was setting everything up. Economic corporate. This term is always used, overtly or implicitly, in opposition to hegemonic. Economic corporate interest means the collective interest of a particular economic category. For instance, merchants or engineering workers. For a social group to become hegemonic, it must move not only from the economic corporate consciousness to class consciousness. It must also go further since class consciousness is still founded upon collective economic interest. Becoming hegemonic may well mean sacrificing economic class interests in order to build quote-unquote expansive alliances. See on this the description of successive, successive quote-unquote moments in the formation of collective political consciousness conscious yeah consciousness in some aspects of the southern question and analysis of situations relations of force ooh my favorite economism economism means for gramsci the theoretical separation of the economic dimensions from social and political ensemble 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 that's not how you speak <laughs> European languages are fake. Anyway, more specifically, the reduction of this ensemble to its economic causes. Economism is epitomized in his view not only by the mechanical historical materialism of the Second International, 1889 to 1914, but also by revolutionary syndicalism and bourgeois liberalism, or laissez-faire, which in this respect he assimilates to one another. The former privileges the revolutionary transformation of economic production at the expense of the winning of political power in the transformation of the state. The latter sees the economy as a self-regulating sphere of individual enterprise to be separated from the interventions of the state. Yet in reality, the state is necessary to sustain a, ooh, excuse me, sustain a capitalist economy and bourgeois society, and historically, it increasingly intervenes in them. In contrast with economism, Gramsci develops the concepts of hegemony and historical block. What's what's QV? I have no idea. I've never seen it. Before. I have never <laughs> seen QV. What the fuck does that mean? I have to know. Go on without me. Okay. Hegemony. This term appears to have entered Gramsci's usage from the political vocabulary of Russian social democracy and the Third International. For a fuller discussion, see Wait, here. And what? I just, it, it's usually, okay, this is what it says. Used in books after a page number to show where you should look to find more information. There's no page number. <laughs> what is happening? Weird. Okay, I'll just start over because it was half a sentence. Hegemony. This term appears to have entered Gramsci's usage from the political vocabulary of Russian social democracy and the Third International. For a further discussion, see Perry Anderson's The Ant Antimonies, I can never pronounce it right, of Gramsci, or Bucci Glucksman from 1980. I haven't read them. Wait, where do you see the Antimonies? Because I know exactly what book. <laughs> oh, you're just fucking genius over here. I'm like... How do you know? I'm kind of a Gramsci expert now. <laughs> um, in this context, the word meant leadership of a class alliance. 
In a first instance, referred to the referring to the 1905 revolution, proletarian leadership of the bourgeois democratic revolution. Subsequently, after 1917, proletarian leadership of an alliance with the peasantry and other exploited groups. This leadership is based on the economically central role of the leading class, but it is secured politically by that class by that classes making economic concessions and sacrifices to its allies. In Gramsci's 1926 essay, Some Aspects of the Southern Question, he argues, page 173 in this edition, that the proletariat can only become hegemonic, a ruling class, if it can overcome its economic self-interest and win the support of the poor peasantry and Southern intellectuals. We're going to see that he means intellectuals in a very different term than than we usually think. What do you mean? Like, like he he includes the priests as intellectuals. Certain, and, no, no, but what what do you mean by intellectuals? Well, we usually th- when we think of intellectual, we usually think of like some academic fuck. Well, I don't know. I see intellectual I kind of like used to separate from like academic you know, like intellectuals, <laughs> anybody who feels a need to intellectualize on a subject, right? Like, think well, that's, that's Gramsci's definition of organic intellectual. But I, I think if you just talk to someone outside of our little group of, of communists, if you just ask someone what an intellectual is, they're going to think of some researcher or academic or some, someone like that. Well, I know, but like, yeah, I get called an intellectual, but I'm not an actual researcher or academic. I just I, I research yeah. in an academic fashion. Well, I mean, well, anyway, this is what I'm referring to is just common the the common sense that we <laughs> we defined a, a few minutes ago. Uh, Southern Southern intellectuals. This notion, which develops out of Soviet debates in 1923 to 1926, recurs in the prison notebooks. See, for instance, 9.10, Analysis of Situations, Relations of Force. In my head, that was Vladimir Ilyich. (laughs) (laughs) Wait, is VI-11... No, that's six, but in my head, I just translated it to initials. So. I called it nine. Six dot, six dot ten. <laughs> it becomes closely associated with two other concepts, quote-unquote Jacobin, Jacobinism and the quote-unquote national popular, and opposed to two others, economism and economic corporatism. Hegemony in this sense is necessarily rooted in an economically dominant or potentially dominant mode of production and in one of the fundamental social classes, bourgeoisie or proletariat. But it is defined precisely by an expansion beyond economic class interest into the sphere of political direction through a system of class alliances. In the prison notebooks, this meaning of hegemony remains but the term Remain. Uh, sorry, I did the inflections wrong. In the prison notebooks, this meaning of hegemony remains, but the term is extended in two ways. First, it is applied not just to situations of proletarian leadership, but also the rule of other classes at other periods of history. Second, it is qualitatively modified. Hegemony comes to mean cultural, moral, and ideological leadership over allied and subordinate groups. Hegemony in this sense, parenthesis, 
which Gramsci develops through the mediation of the of Croce's Croce's C R O C E, and it, one of Gramsci's advisors uh, of Croce's <laughs> concept of the ethico-political. End parenthesis. Hegemony in this sense, the parenthesis that I just read, is identified with the formation of a new ideological quote unquote terrain with political, cultural, and moral leadership with consent. Hegemony is thus linked by Gramsci in a chain of associations and oppositions to civil society as against political society, to consent to get as to consent as against coercion, to quote unquote direction as against quote unquote domination. These binaries draw out on the coercion, consent, opposition in Machiavelli and other political thinkers. Gramsci's concept of hegemony also appears to have been influenced by historical linguistics in its accounts of the influence or prestige exerted by one form of a language over another. Hegemony in Gramsci is sometimes interpreted as a relation purely of cultural or ideological influence or as a sphere of pure consent. It is also sometimes assimilated to the notion of quote-unquote dominant ideology. See, for instance, Hunt, 1986, and Boggs, 1976. I'll also say that this is typically uh, the interpretation post-colonialism took. And a lot of other modern academics doing cultural studies. Yet these interpretations seem to be mistaken. Gramsci stresses that, quote, though hegemony is ethico-political, it must also be economic, must necessarily be based on the decisive function exercised by the leading group in the decisive nucleus of economic activity, end quote. Pages 211 to 212 in this reader that we're going to come come through. In cases such as the French parliamentary regime as the quote-unquote normal, in cases such as the French French parliamentary regime, the normal exercise of hegemony is carried by the combination of force and consent, variously balancing one one another. He also insists that hegemony is dynamic. Parenthesis, a, quote, continuous process of formation and superseding of unsustainable equilibria, end end quote, in parentheses. And the, quote, fact of hegemony presupposes that account be taken that account be taken of the interests and tendencies of other groups over which hegemony is to be exercised, end quote, page 211 of this reader. In other words, it presupposes an active and practical involvement of of the hegemonized groups, quite unlike the static, totalizing, and passive subordination implied by the dominant ideology concept. It also seems incorrect to maintain that since Gramsci applies the concept of hegemony not only to the to proletarian revolutionary leadership, as in the Russian tradition, but also to bourgeois rule, this means that he sees bourgeois and proletarian, proletarian rule as being structurally assimilable to one another or as containing a sort of interchangeable core. Gramsci is, in fact, careful to distinguish different forms of hegemony according to the different historical situations and class actors involved. Typical forms of bourgeois hegemony are, quote, unquote, passive revolution and, quote, unquote, transformation, 
oh, the QV means that these are the terms defined later on in this glossary. There we go. We figured it out. <laughs> Context. Typical forms of bourgeois hegemony are, quote, passive revolution and, quote, unquote, transformation, or that of, par of the parliamentary regime. By contrast, Gramsci defines proletarian hegemony indirectly when he writes of the philosophy of praxis. Quote, it is not an instrument of government of dominant groups in order to gain the consent the consent of and exercise hegemony over subaltern classes. It is the expression of these subaltern classes who want to educate themselves in the art of government. Historical block. This is a concept used by Gramsci to designate the dialectical unity of base and superstructure, of theory and practice, of intellectuals and masses, and parentheses, and not as is sometimes mistakenly asserted, simply an alliance of social forces, end parentheses. It is a central concept in establishing a theoretical distance from economism and restoring reciprocity to the study of concrete historical situations. Indeed, it has been urged that the concept so reworks the base superstructure metaphor as to supersede it and make it redundant as such even though Gramsci himself stopped short of taking this theoretical step. Uh, can you explain that a bit? What it's saying is that this can be used as like something more important than base superstructure in a term, in terms of explanation, but Gramsci doesn't end up getting there. Oh, um, interesting. So like the base superstructure is a general concept, right? That the economy defines culture and we can, apply that to feudalism or whatever, because it, it's a good um, scaffold. Historical sure. block is a more, uh, I guess, concrete examination of feudalism to stay within the example. Okay. Um, yeah. It, 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 historical block takes the whole base and superstructure metaphor, but more, uh, it teases out the hegemony dynamic. Right. So, like, in the feudal period, due to the complexities around the world, even though it's accurate to call it all one feudal period, there's big enough differences in the bases that the superstructures... Well, so it's looking at the base and superstructure, and usually when we do base and superstructure, right, it's... it's uh, We take the base, and these are the relations between right. slavery and feudal lords and all of that shit. And then we send it up over to the superstructure, which is governance, but also it's, it's like the culture of the time. So the harvest festivals and all of that shit, the addition of hegemony in that analysis is what turns it in historical block. And with the addition of hegemony, we're not only looking at those things, we're looking at how they build consent into the system. Right. That makes okay. sense? Yeah. Okay. Well, where was I? Shit. Uh, in in 6.3, right? Yeah. And, well, in 6.3, he writes, quote, structures and superstructures form a quote-unquote historical block, that is to say, the complex, contradictory, and discordant ensemble of the superstructures is the reflection of the ensemble of the social relations of production. 
see also the important passage in 6.4 and 11.3. Intellectuals. Gramsci defines intellectuals in the prison notebooks as those people who give a fundamental social group homogeneity and awareness of its own function. Intellectuals are educators, organizers, leaders. Quote unquote, organic intellectuals are those who emerge from out of the group itself. For instance, a worker who becomes a political activist. Quote unquote, traditional intellectuals are those who have remained from earlier social formations and who may attach themselves to one or the other fundamental class. For instance, priests who may have either a revolutionary or conservative function depending on their class identifications. So, for example, this is like... Uh, the Jesuits. Jesuits, or on the other side, liberation theology. Wait, isn't that the same people? I forget. I think the Jesuits are separate. I, I don't I don't quite understand those Catholics. <laughs> In the political party organic in the political party organic and traditional intellectuals come together in italian in italian the term intellectual work lavoro intellectuale also has the sense of simply also has the sense simply of quote unquote mental work or quote unquote work by brain in both cases intellectual defines a function as much as it defines the concrete individual who fulfills this function Gramsci is thus able to envisage, envisage a situation in which, as part of the revolutionary transformation of society, the intellectual function is massively expanded. In other words, more and more people share their tasks of mental activity, of organizing, deliber deliberating, and leading, both politically and within the sphere of economic production. For Gramsci, this would be also be a process of democratization, and would inhibit the formation of bureaucracies, which arise precisely where decision-making is monopolized by a specialized elite of intellectuals. He saw what was going on in the Soviet Union and was like, I don't like that. <laughs> yeah, right. Anyway, great. Well, I mean, because it becomes its own sort of you know, remnants of the old society, right? It's, it's a lot of what Lenin criticized in his 23 letter. Um on the state apparatus. But anyway, I, I would wonder how much that influenced this. It'd be curious. Cause like we never really get the citations. Right. But um, anyway, he was there right during 23. I can't remember. Gramsci. I can't remember when he goes, when does he go to the Soviet union? Uh, I think it was after that. After that. Okay. Maybe. Was it 29? I thought yeah, I saw me to remind me of a timeline. We went over two days ago. Exactly. You know, we can just like back it up, right? <laughs> Figure it out, but refer to the last episode. <laughs> Gramsci adapt. Oh, intellectual and moral reformation. Gramsci adapts this term via George's. Am I saying that right? George's Sorel from Ernest yeah. Renan, one of whose books was entitled La Reforme Intellectuale et Morale. That's all in parentheses <laughs> and applies it by analogy with the Protestant reformation and the French revolution to a wholesale transformation of con conceptions of the world and norms of conduct brought by the philosophy of praxis. 
Jacobinism. Oh, oh, sorry. I was just <laughs> Jacobinism. I thought you were going to talk on the last one. Nah, it's simple enough. I think in Gramsci Jacobinism. <laughs> in Gramsci's Wait, earlier, what section are we in? What? No, I just wanted to hear you say Jacobinism again. Jacobinism. In Gramsci's early writings, the term Jacobinism has negative <laughs> has negative connotations of sectarian, mystical, abstract, elitist. Uh, it just ends with elitist. Wait, mystical? <laughs> uh, I guess this is like the mystifying. Yeah, mystical is, is like the old, old way people with the very strict definition, I guess. In the prison notebooks, however, it is, quote unquote, revalued and acquires the positive meaning of leadership of a national popular alliance in which the peasant masses are organically bonded to the leading classes, country to city. It is likely that this revaluation, reevaluation, now revaluation, <laughs> it is likely that this revaluation was influenced by Lenin in Two Tactics of Social Democracy. Lenin called the Bolsheviks the Jacobins of contemporary social democracy, whose slogans is the revolutionary democratic dictatorship of the proletariat and peasantry. In 1917, Lenin wrote, quote, Jacobinism in Europe or on the boundary line between Europe and Asia in the 20th century would be the rule of the revolutionary class of the proletariat, which supported by the peasant poor and taking advantage of the existing material basis for the advance to socialism could not only provide all the great unforgettable things provided by the Jacobins in the 18th century, but would bring about a lasting worldwide victory for the working people. End quote. Uh. <laughs> well then. Uh-huh. Mm. One moment, please. (laughs) I hit back. (laughs) So those of you who oh no probably haven't heard it in other series yet because they've yet to come out. But I have a new mouse that has a key on it that I'll accidentally hit sometimes because I'm used to a slightly bigger mouse. And uh, yeah, I accidentally backspace sometimes. Oh God. Gotta find the page we are on now too. Oh wow, that was actually kind of quick. <laughs> <laughs> National popular. Oh, sorry, were we did we say anything about Jacobinism? Yeah, we did that. Um National No, no, but I mean, did you have anything to say because you went uh after No, just just I went uh because it definitely didn't happen in the twentieth century. <laughs> yeah, I know. He's a little too hopeful. Um, this term is associated with the, oh, national popular, sorry. This term is associated with the concept of hegemony and Jacobinism, as well as being a recurrent term in Gramsci's cultural analysis. Politically, a national popular movement is one in which a fundamental class becomes hegemonic at a national level by drawing subaltern social groups into an alliance. Any formation of a national popular collective will Will is impossible unless the great mass of peasant farmers burst simultaneously into political life. SPN 132? What's what's that? SPN. Are you talking? 
I accidentally hit uh, Control P instead of Control, control D. That's funny. <laughs> wow, uh, that's like on the opposite side of the keyboard, though. I know. <laughs> SPN is is just like a different way to say prison notebook. I know. Stupid. Stupid. Sorry. Why? Okay. So there's a thing called style. Okay. <laughs> you can't use a previously established stylistic choice and then change it at the glossary level. That's a weird place to change it to. Anyway. Where was I? <laughs> the term national popular reflects Gramsci's conception of the revolution in Italy as a national movement which fulfills under socialism the historical tasks which the bourgeoisie had abdicated after the Risorgimento. Risorgimento is the, the period of time where Italy oh. unifies. Okay, so Risorgimento wasn't a bad pronunciation. Nice. <laughs> As he had written in 1919, historically the bourgeois class is already dead. <laughs> Today, the national class is the proletariat. Uh, this is in Lourdes Nuovo, 1919, 1920, and then Turin, 1975, page 278. This is the collection of his, his writings. Okay. Culturally, the term, which was perhaps influenced by 19th century Russian abates and parentheses, designates forms of art and literature which help cement this kind of hegemonic alliance, neither intellectualistic nor quote-unquote cosmopolitan, but engaging with popular reality and drawing in popular talent, proper audiences. <laughs> Italians, just drawing in popular Italians. <laughs> Sorry, the image in my head just... <laughs> Very funny. <laughs> uh, it, remember, we started off with page 420, so I took a huge bomb rip. And <laughs> it's been downhill since. <laughs> Italian intellectuals are historically non-national popular. Mm, I guess like this was at that time. <laughs> right. That's what he's talking about. Yeah. Cause like they seem kind of national popularistic now. <laughs> anyway. <laughs> um, oh, it's your turn. Yeah. Organic and conjunctural. For Gramsci, Marxist analysis must distinguish what is organic, that is to say, of the whole system and relatively permanent, from what is conjunctural, that is to say, specific to a given moment. It must it must know how it must know how to read the structural contradictions in the economy beneath the conjunctural conflicts at the level of the political system and ideology. So think of like the differences in neoliberalism between the the either Bush era and then the following democratic era and, and those. Wait, wait, which Bush? Sorry. Are we like, gonna, so like, I mean, are we going to be like senior and then, Oh, then it turns to Clinton. Then we go back to the Bush and that's yeah, like the well, alternating. It doesn't really matter. Uh, my point is like, look at the differences between Bush senior and Clinton or Bush junior and Obama. And those differences are conjunctures compared to the over overarching structural condition of neoliberalism and all that. 
Okay. Gramsci's position here is different from that of economism, with which it might at first be at first sight be confused. For the latter, one must always look to the quote-unquote reality of the economic base beneath the quote-unquote appearances of the superstructures. For Gramsci, on the other hand, one must constantly connect the organic and conjunctural moments to one another. This means understanding and seeing as equally real the terrain of the conjunctural, since it is precisely, quote, upon this terrain that the forces of opposition organize. The error comes, unquote, the error comes when one pays excessive attention only to one or the other. Overemphasis on the organic at the expense of the conjunctural leads to economism, just as overemphasis on the conjunctural leads to ideologism. Did, did we go over ideologism? Is, is, does he have a definition or are we just... No, he doesn't. That's, that's just like... We're just rolling uh, with it, okay. Identitarianism or, or right. something similar. Well, dogmatism. Yeah, yeah. Ultra shit. I don't know. You name it. Organic crisis. An organic crisis is a crisis which is organic. No, could you imagine? Is <laughs> a crisis of the whole system in which contradictions in the economic structure have repercussions through the superstructures. One of its signs is when the traditional forms of political representation (parentheses parties or party leaders) and parentheses are no longer recognized as adequate by the economic class or class. F- fraction which they had previously served to represent we're kind of going into an organic crisis certainly um like with just communist leadership um <laughs> and in the u.s that is uh, actually in canada just sort of had a collapse of their party <laughs> um where is it? it is therefore a crisis of hegemony since it occurs when since it occurs when a formerly hegemonic class is challenged from below and is no longer able to hold together a cohesive block of social alliances. Such an organic crisis opened in Gramsci's analysis in Italy before the First World War, when the bourgeoisie and the landowners faced with the growing power of the working class organizations lost confidence in the liberal ruling elite to represent them. Organic crisis produce a situation of rapid political realignments. In Italy, after the war, the, these resulted in the rise of power of fascism. C612 and 8, 9, and 10. Passive revolution. Gramsci adapts the term, quote unquote, passive revolution from Vincenzo Cuoco's History of the 19, of 1799 Revolution in Naples but it is, quote-unquote, completely modified by his own usage. It is used to describe any historical situation in which a new political formation comes to power without a, quote-unquote, oh, that's not a quote, that's just dust. (laughs) It is used to describe any historical situation in which a new political formation... (laughs) comes to power without a fundamental rendering of social relations. He first applies it to the Rizzo to describe the process by which the bourgeoisie, represented by Cavour's moderates, achieves power without a revolution of the French type. Chopping off everyone's head. 
He then extends it to other liberal mo movements of the post-1815 restoration and finally to fascism, which modernizes the economy, quote-unquote, from above by breaking the political power of the laissez-faire bourgeoisie and the organized working class. Polancis does a really good analysis of that. I suggest you, you check that out, too. Bridget Tizay <laughs> said that all, all the new left was a CIA op. Bridget, sure. I forget what the fuck she runs. I forget her podcast name anyway. You know, the one Talia hates. I don't. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, so Palancis is a CIA agent. No, he's Greek. He's, he's, nope, uh, he's a CIA agent. Sure. I was trying to think of whatever the Greek version of intelligence is, but I oh, couldn't no, think. No, no, I don't. So he's a gladio operative is the nice way yes. to say it. Yes, he's not. Go read him. <laughs> yeah, no, I'm just fucking with you. Bridget brought COVID to Cuba and she's stupid. No, God. Gramsci describes these forms of passive revolution as manifestations of a quote-unquote war of position by the dominant classes after a phase of war of maneuver from below. The French Revolution, the period, and the period 1917 to 1921. Although it has sometimes been asserted perhaps because of this assimilation between passive revolution and war of position that Gramsci also advocated from a for advocated a form of passive revolution for the left. In fact, he explicitly says that is only, that is only an analytical tool, a quote unquote criterion of implementation and not a program quote, as it was for the Italian li liberals of the Risorgimento. Interpretation, not Im implementation. Oh, yeah, sorry. <laughs> what does criterion mean? I guess I've never looked at like a criteria. Criterions is like there one one definition is like movie shit, that's why you have criterion channel, but that's why I was confused. But criterion is like I don't really know English terms, so I don't I, I don't know what the difference between a an adverb and all that shit is. So criterion is a, a variation of criteria. Like things you need. It's a it's a principle or standard by which something may be judged or decided. Yeah. Basis, standard, norm. He also says that the quote dialectic of conservation and innovation, which constitutes passive revolution, is called reformism in modern terminology. That's the end Wait, of the book. Okay, so passive revolution is reformism. Yes. <laughs> the long of it. <laughs> <laughs> so the, philosophy of praxis. I'm just saying, you've used it three times. Maybe you should have put this earlier. He, he also should have put, like, War of Maneuver earlier, too. <laughs> Honestly, this is... This is I mean, state? That's a pretty... Not very well thought out. Yeah. Wow. I, I'm literally developing a glossary as I'm writing something right now. And so it's just very annoying. Because <laughs> I feel so stupid when we get to a shut up and read the book moment. Because it's just like, well, actually, this is his fault for fucking organizing this poorly. <laughs> so, philosophy of praxis. 
This term is used in many passages of the prison notebooks in place of Marxism. Gramsci also refers to Marx as the founder of the philosophy of praxis and to Lenin as the greatest modern theorist of the philosophy of praxis. The expression, however, is more than a oh, that was all in parentheses. I got the hiccups. I'm so sorry. The expression, however, is more than a device to bypass the censor. It also conveys, as it did for the socialist philosopher Antonio Labriola, from whom Gramsci borrowed it, and parentheses, a specific conception of Marxism as a unity of theory and practice. For Gramsci, the philosophy of praxis is both a theory of, of the contradictions in society and at the same time, people's practical awareness of those contradictions. The philosophy of praxis is the self-conscious quote-unquote self-consciousness of historical quote-unquote necessity and involves the formation of a revolutionary collective will which can act in accordance which can act in accordance with that necessity. Gramsci, in other words, sees the philosophy of praxis not only as a system of philosophical ideas, but also as forming the basis of a mass, quote-unquote, conception of the world. The, quote, quote, the character of the philosophy of praxis is especially that of being a mass conception, a mass culture, that of a mass which operates as a unit. In other words, one which has norms of conduct, which are not only universal at that level of ideas, but generalized in social reality. End quote. Quote, the philosophy of praxis is absolute, quote unquote, historicism, end quote. Wait, I did that. Uh, the absolute bringing down to earth and worldliness of thought and absolute humanism of history. It is along the line. It is along this line that one must trace the thread of, of the new conception of the world End quote, Jesus. <laughs> state. Gramsci uses the term state in at least two different senses in the prison notebooks. In the first narrow sense, the state is a sphere of quote-unquote domination, the organ or instrument of the oppression of one class by another. See, for instance, 10.1, page 306 of this reader. This corresponds to one of the uses of the term in Marx and to Lenin's use in the state and revolution, and it is also the main sense in which the term was used in the second and third internationals. This is also partly what Althusser builds on. In the second wider sense, parentheses, which seems also to be a later one in the composition of the notebooks, and parentheses, the state is a quote-unquote integral state. It has the functions both of coercion and consent. It contains both the apparatuses of government and the judiciary and the very various voluntary and private associations of parapolitical institutions which make up civil society. This is also the Althusser thing. Work Stoppage has a, has a good thing on, on this whole Althusser state conception. So oh, go I'll have to check, check it out. out. Yeah. Um, in this wider sense, the state 
In this wider sense, the state possesses, quote unquote, educative and quote unquote, ethical functions, which will remain, indeed expand under socialism as the state in the narrow sense, as an instrument of, of coercion and class domination. Was the That was parentheses. <laughs> this is meant to be read, not spoken. Um, if you can't which, tell by our constant fuck-ups. Yeah, which will remain and indeed expand under socialism as the state in the narrow sense withers away. Quote, it is possible to imagine the coercive element of the state withering away by degrees as ever more conspicuous elements of regulated, regulated society or ethical state or civil society make their appearance. End quote. Within the integral state, the term civil society has, quote, the sense of the political and cultural hegemony of a social group over the whole of society, the ethical content of the state, emphasis on ethical content of the state, content of the state. Okay, okay. So the sense of the political and cultural hegemony of a social group over the whole of society, the ethical content of the state. Yeah. Okay. So I'm just uh, like that makes sense or i'm trying to parse it in my head right now <laughs> hold on in the integral state the term has a sense of political culture uh, i mean like it makes sense in my head because like i'm used to being an indian um <laughs> the ethical content of the state is like genocide's goal well yeah the ethical content of the state you know it's it's basic to say like the state says murder is bad but like the state also is what sets up education and we learn ethics from interacting with the healthcare system and the news and all of that stuff. So like ethics is a very broad sense here that informs how we should act and believe things should be. And also it's very subjective. <laughs> yeah. But it's also like kind of the general vibe of things that is common sense as we saw in the first sense, then, state is separated from civil society as coercion against consent, domination against direction, dictatorship against hegemony. In the second sense, state includes both civil society and the state in the first or narrow sense, now called political society. So political society and state in the narrow sense can be interchanged. In both cases, the distinction between two quote-unquote regions, political society or civil society, is the same, and both together or method are methodologically separated from by Gramsci from a third quote-unquote region, the economic society or the economic structure. Transformism. Transformers, robots in disguise. No, okay. A term originally used in Italian political jargon in the late 1870s to describe loose alliances between factions of left and right, parentheses, opponents were, quote-unquote, transformed into supporters across the floor of parliament, and parentheses. Gramsci extends it to describe the characteristics, characteristic form of bourgeois hegemony in Italy, between unification and fascism, with a system of transformation, there is no real opposition or alteration, alternation in power, I should say. 
Instead, there is a piecemeal absorption of the opposition by the ruling elites. Gramsci distinguishes two main phases, 1860 to 1900, quote-unquote molecular transformism in which individual exponents of the democratic opposition go over to the moderate conservative center, 1900 to 1918, transformism of whole groups of the left who go over to the center or right. For instances, the Nationalist Party is formed out of ex-anarchists and syndicalists. War of Maneuver and War of Position. These military terms used in relation to the First World War meant respectively, so War of Maneuver meant a war of rapid movement with a series of frontal assaults and trench warfare backed up by reserves of supplies, munitions, and soldiers behind the lines. In parallel with the state-civil society distinction, Gramsci applies the two concepts to politics. Quote, It means to me that Illich, which is how he talks about Lenin in the prison notebooks to get around the censors. So what's up with my boy Illich? <laughs> Illich? I don't know how to say as it. If, as if no one knows that Lenin's name is Illich. Um, apparently I mean, the censors didn't. Well, that's like you just had to hope that people are kind of dumb. Yeah. Usually. You think if he was like Vlad, my boy Vlad, <laughs> they'd get it? Maybe. Quote, it seems to me that Illich understood that a change was necessary from a war of maneuver, a frontal attack on the state, applied victoriously in the East in 1917 to a war of position, which was the only form possible in the West. End quote. War of position is linked to Gramsci's notion of hegemony in his various senses, class alliances, quote unquote, molecular, ideological and political work in civil society, consent, etc., It should be noted, however, that he uses the term war of position not only to designate a revolutionary strategy for the left, but also to describe a phase of, quote-unquote, revolution reaction or passive revolution, which follows upon a revolutionary offensive, a war of maneuver. In this sense, fascism is also a form of war of position. See page 276 of this reader. So he's saying after you win a war of maneuver, you have to transition into a passive revolution? It could be after you win the war of maneuver, but a war of position can take place before the next war of maneuver happens. So like right now the left should be in a war of position where we're constantly trying to educate and bring people up to class consciousness so that when there's a war of position, and this is not me calling for a war of, sorry. So that when there's a war of maneuver, and this is not me calling for a war of maneuver, there are just struggles and uprisings that happen. We can look at the BLM movement as an attempt to develop a war of maneuver. So that when a war of maneuver happens, there is general mass support. So like, if there was a war of position actively going on, the BLM movement might have like a- actually taken off into real shit. Um, so that that's kind of it. You can be waging a war of position outside of it. And he, he mentions that fascism, fascism is a war of position because typically fascism, right, it doesn't take over 
a government by force. The whole Hitler and Mussolini were elected and all that shit. That that is using the institutions to change political and civil society for bad things. All right. Well, you know, I guess that's the end of the glossary of key terms. And, and we are out of time, so we will not be reading an essay today. Well, it's but, perfect timing. It fit right yeah. into the box. <laughs> Nice and condensed. So and next time it'll be David and everybody. And I hope to God David catches up. <laughs> You're going to be asking a lot of questions, David, if you don't know this stuff. <laughs> David, I hope you're listening to this. This Take is a warning. <laughs> I don't know. It took me a while to catch up with all the episodes y'all did without me. <laughs> I were like two. Yeah, I know, and I didn't catch up with them until we had recorded, like, two more. (laughs) Anyway, um, I did do the reading, though, so, man. Substitution. Uh, Actually, not substitute, better. (laughs) So, anyway, uh, thank you all for listening. I hope you enjoyed. This, of course, has been Mark's Madness, uh, now part of the Chunkaluta Network. Uh, We, of course, uh, are Shigmanic, too, and... Prez. Thank you. That's the cue. (laughs) (laughs) And uh, David will be back next week. As said, uh, if you like what you heard or want to complain, please address all complaints to Prez at Marxy Marks (laughs) on Twitter. Uh, In reality, though, uh, we're also on Twitter at Marxy Mark. (laughs) Nope. At Mark's Madness Pod. (laughs) And then at Chuckaloot to 1973. Um, you know, any questions or you want recommendations or you just want to send us some stupid fucking meme or complain by all means or criticism or correct us, you know, anything, please, by all means, we welcome it. Uh, if you, uh, or if you don't like Twitter, we have an email, markspandispod at gmail.com, or you can email me uh, at bands of turtle Island at gmail.com or chunkaluta1973 at gmail.com. Uh, we have a Patreon that will support getting Prez a better microphone. Though your microphone sounded pretty good today. Not going to lie. Good. It yeah, was just know. there was less background noise today. I think so. So <laughs> less motorcycles. Um, <laughs> but uh, yeah, we're trying to get Prez a better mic. Uh, we're trying to pay people to do transcriptions to make uh, the Mark's Madness episodes and other members of the network's episodes more accessible and uh, therefore uh, easier to utilize in education, um, <laughs> say, or just propaganda purposes, right? Um, you know, there's, uh, it's going to pay. Website hosting, um, costs for materials for various organizing things or uh, fundraisers. Um, Like, we want to launch the Bureau of Caucasian Affairs shirt, which uh, we've changed to the Bureau of Wasichu Affairs, I think, uh, just to be a little more, like, respectful of actual Caucasus people. <laughs> like we we asked our Caucasian friend, like if they're actually from the Caucasus. And we we're like, would you be offended? Like, I mean, I wouldn't, but you might as well just avoid any controversy. And yeah, whatever. 
So we're avoiding the controversy, but we have the design and now we're just uh, fundraising and deciding what a good initial stock is, right? Blah, 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 blah. And then you have to buy in bulk and find somewhere to store it. And Hey, uh, anyway, um, that's, you know, uh, about it for the Patreon, I think. Uh, oh, that's Chunkle Luther Network, I think. It's in the show notes. Uh, there's, you know, we have a million projects going on that it supports, as well as, you know, you can just directly donate if you want. We're launching a GoFundMe uh, to raise money for a summer drive, which is the goal is to try to set up some um, permanent aspects out where we organize on my reservation um, that will make organizing there easier during the winter. If you paid attention last year, we raised about $10,000 to go out with a U-Haul full of wood, um, water barrels and a bunch of other blankets and shit. Um, You know, we helped a lot of people gave away a bunch of coats. Some of them got lost. Like it was when like people were tearing apart freight trains or something in LA. (laughs) So I think, I think our coats got stolen. <laughs> which kind of sucks because like it was the biggest order of coats too and like uh i was like you know what i deserve a new winter coat no i didn't get one this year so i'm still using the winter coat i can't zip because <laughs> it's from when i was like a freshman in high school it was the last time i had a new winter coat <laughs> so anyway uh and that's like we get like 12 we got 12 feet of snow at one point here so i'm like I'm going to die. I don't know. Uh, anyway, we're, uh, we're Mark's Madness. If you want to talk to us uh, regularly or just enjoy a community of people, there is the official Mark's Madness server, which is free, and you can access via the Twitter uh, or email us. We don't care. Um, but the Patreon gets you access to the Chunkaluta Network server which is the unofficial Mark's Madness server. <laughs> so you pay for something free. What a sale. Um, but no, you also, you know, uh, are in contact with a bunch of other podcasts, listenership, as well as just great comrades that were like hand invited. Like most people in there are invited without paying just because it's more of a place to create a community that's able to discuss Um land back and decolonization in a serious way. That's not filled with ignorance, you know, which is just often the case, uh, as well as, you know, uh, generally discord servers aren't very positive places. So we try to have a positive place. That's a little more public than some of my favorite places to skulk around on the internet. <laughs> anyway, uh, any, anything you want to add prez? Uh, no, I have nothing. Okay, praise be the Orca Lords, and thank you all for listening.